If you've got a Bible, we are going to head today to Luke's Gospel. I, I know some of you are freaking out because didn't we just do communion last weekend? But just trust me, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this together. Uh, Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter uh, 22, is where we're going to head this weekend, beginning in verse 17. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. And he replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment In the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Lord God, as we've gathered together, help us to be aware of your presence that is all around. Would you give us the courage to hear the words of scripture in a way that causes us to realign our lives in a way that resembles and honors you? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Transform us? Inspire us? Would you open our mind, our hearts, and our ears to receive all that you want to say to us this weekend? Amen. In 1983, I made my first communion at St. Mary's Church in Gasport, New York. I took all of the required CCD classes. I made the Sacrament of Reconciliation or Penance, if you're not familiar with that term. When the day came, I put on my Sunday best. My family was there uh, for the big event. I got up out of my seat, walked down the aisle. I received uh, the host from the priest. Then I went to the minister of Eucharist, received the cup. They wiped it to get the germs of the last 20 people off, which is probably not COVID uh, protocol now. Afterwards, we had a party at my house. I received cards and gifts and money, which I thought was awesome. It was a day to be remembered and celebrated. But as I got a bit older, I began to ask some questions. I began to wonder, is this too complicated? Is this practice too exclusive? Is this really what Jesus had in mind? Well, then I moved into the Protestant tradition, and there were no classes required for communion. It was celebrated once a month, not once a week. 
trays were passed down the aisle that contained little shot glasses of juice. The middle contained crumbled up unleavened bread that stuck to your mouth when you tried to eat it. And now, because of all this COVID stuff, we now have little cups that are impossible to open and super annoying because they're loud. (laughs) And again, I'm asking some questions. Is our practice too loose? Too inclusive? Have we, in some ways, lost a bit of the sacredness of what it is we're doing, what it is that we're celebrating? The practice of bread and wine or juice goes by different names. Some call it communion. Others call it the Eucharist. Some refer to it as the Lord's Supper. Some traditions call it a sacrament. Others call it an ordinance. There are actually four major viewpoints about what happens to the bread and the wine of the juice. Some believe the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. In theology, that's called transubstantiation. Others believe that the bread and wine contain Christ, which is called consubstantiation. Others believe that Christ is present spiritually in the wine and bread, and others believe that it's just a symbol. And quite frankly, it gets all confusing really, really fast. And we have to be honest by asking the question, why does any of this even matter on Monday morning when I wake up to face my very real life? What impact does the celebration of communion have on uh, Tuesday morning with all the opportunities and challenges that I face, all the struggles, all the joys, all of the everyday living? I think it matters because what we're talking about is allowing that which is invisible to become visible. In 1665, a man named Robert Hooke made a startling discovery. The human body is made up of all these little units that he called cells. We did not know about cells because we could not see them until they were viewed under an instrument called a microscope. The microscope allowed that which was invisible to become visible. All religions have an instrument. An instrument that allows that which is invisible to become visible for at least a moment. We might refer to them as practices or disciplines. But the instrument we're talking about is actually a ritual. All religions have rituals. Regardless of what you call communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, what we're talking about is a ritual. And we all have them. Every one of us have rituals that are a part of our everyday life. Some of our rituals are common. Uh, In the evening, I pack my gym bag and I place it by my bedroom door because that gives me one less excuse in the morning to miss going to the gym. In the evening, before I go home from my office, I completely clear my desk. I take everything off, all books, papers, pencils, everything, because I want a fresh start for the next day. It's a ritual. Other rituals, however, are a bit more sacred. 25 years ago, I stood at the altar of a church and made a commitment to my wife, a vow. It was a ritual, and it was sacred. 18 years ago, I brought my first child to the front of a church and dedicated her to the Lord. It was a ritual. In the morning, I spend time praying, sitting in silence. It's ritual. We all have them. Even professional athletes have rituals. One of the greatest 
NHL goaltenders of all time, Patrick Waugh, has a ritual in which he would step onto the ice and skate backwards before he got to the net. And just before he got there, he would turn around and face it because he believed that ritual made the net smaller. I actually have a ritual that I go through on the weekend before I get up to speak. Uh, just... It's not weird, but it's, it's mine. I, in my office, I have this little vial of anointing oil from Israel. There's a lot of talk in the Old Testament about anointing. And so I take a dab of oil, not because I think it's magical, but I put it on my forehead, my lips, my hands, and my feet, simply to remind me of the weight of my calling and what I'm doing because I'm not up here just to give a TED Talk. Jesus took bread, unleavened bread, and wine, and he gave us a ritual. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Rituals are those instruments, those practices that allow that which is invisible to become visible for just a moment. A lot of our faith is unseen. The writer of Hebrews describes faith as confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. But every once in a while, because I'm human, I need something to see, something to hold, something I can touch. And so Jesus gave us something we could hold, something we could touch, something we could taste and smell. He gave us this practice right before his death as he sat with his 12 disciples. Now, he's with them, and he could have given them anything. He could have given them a sermon, a Bible passage, a lecture, but he gave them none of those things. He gave them a meal that would explain in brilliant color Not only his vocation, but also his death. I mean, there's just something about gathering around a table with those that you love and sharing a meal together. If you read the Gospels, you notice a lot of Jesus' ministry involved food, which is one of the many reasons I love the guy so much, right? (laughs) He got in trouble because he shared meals with sinners. One time he was preaching a sermon to thousands of people. At the end of the day, he noticed they were hungry. And he said to his disciples, do you have any food? And they said, well, there's a kid here with some fish and some bread. And Jesus took this kid's Lunchable and blessed it and fed thousands of people. His last act with his disciples, well, it's centered around food. So for the next few moments together, I'd like us to look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 22 from three very, very distinct angles. The first is from the angle of the sacred. The second is from the angle of proclamation. And the third, from the angle of connectedness. I begin with the sacred, however, because the practice of communion helps us experience and re-engage that which is sacred. There is a longing in every human heart for the transcendent, that which is above us, that which is holy. It is, however, because we're humans, so very easy to slip into mediocrity and to profane that which is supposed to be consecrated. There's a passage in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church gathered in a city called Corinth. And he's writing to them, particularly in chapter 11, because he believed they were abusing the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, they do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that 
when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. He's saying that in a very snarky, sarcastic voice. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whoever, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment upon themselves. I think it's important to get a little, little bit of context here. In the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, churches did not meet in cathedrals or sanctuaries. Churches met in homes. The celebration of communion was also celebrated within the context of an actual meal. Now, early Roman homes were designed to reinforce social status and difference. And what that meant was there were some parts of the home that were designed for those people of means, those that were wealthy. You might call it the grand dining room. There were other parts of the home that were set aside for those of lower social class. When the church gathered, the church was made up of upper class, middle class, lower class. They would all come together. But during the meal portion, those that were of means were ushered into the nicer dining rooms. Those that were of lesser means were ushered into the small kitchens and nooks and crannies. And the food that was served was different. Those that were in the dining room, they were the ones that received the steak, the lobster tail. Well, it wouldn't have been lobster because they didn't eat shellfish. So caviar, something, I don't know. And those that were... In the lower kitchens, they were given spam and wonder bread. The main dining room, they were served wine from the top shelf. These guys drank wine out of a cardboard box. There was this division. The better your social status, the better the experience, which is why The Apostle Paul writes, so when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own suppers. As a result, one person is hungry and another person's getting drunk. There's like an abuse happening here and the Apostle Paul is correcting it. He goes on to write, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. The practice of communion was being diluted. There was 
despicable things happening because they were thinking so little of what was happening. Sacredness begins with intent, which is why the Apostle Paul goes on to write, so whenever you eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. The Apostle Paul is describing intent, the intent of the human heart. It doesn't matter if you practice communion once a week or once a month. It doesn't matter if you receive communion in your seat or if you get up out of your chair and walk to the front. It doesn't matter if communion is served in plastic cups or a golden chalice. Everything has to do with the intention of the heart. Everyone ought to examine themselves, their motives, before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I want to share with you for a moment some unsettledness within myself. I feel a bit conflicted as I examine my own motives. My own motives for my life. Why do I do what I do? Why do we do what we do? Why do we gather together? Why do I stand before you? Why am I a pastor in the first place? What's my motive? What's my motive for being a follower of Christ? I mean, when my faith or the practice of my faith simply becomes a convenience... Religion becomes a product, and we're all consumers rather than worshipers. If my whole faith is based on my convenience, what my schedule allows, can I fit it in, can I squeeze it in? When religion is a product packaged in a way that I like, a way that I prefer, a way that I'm not going to get too put off or offended by, or if I can just find the right church, the right book, the right conference, the right podcast, the right sermon, the right something... But what's my motive? The last couple of years, my motives have been deeply, deeply challenged. Someone once said, in times of uncertainty, what's important becomes really, really clear. Over the last few months, things have become really, really clear to me. The first thing that is very clear is that my family is my everything and they will always get my very best. My wife, my children, my parents, my brothers. My family is so incredibly important to me. And the second is my faith. The way that I live my faith, the way that I practice my faith, the way that I express my faith. Not just my vocation as a pastor, not just my job, but the way that I emulate Christ in the world, the way that I uh, come before my my maker. And what I've discovered as I've once again leaned deeply into my faith is that sometimes the practice of my faith is inconvenient. Jesus even said to his disciples, if you want to be one of my disciples, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I don't like denying myself, which is probably why I've gained 10 pounds. I don't want to take up my cross because that's a a reference to sacrifice. I don't want to sacrifice because sacrifice is hard. Sacrifice is work. Sacrifice costs me something. 
So yes, sometimes the practice of my faith is incredibly inconvenient, and sometimes the practice of my faith calls me to go to some really uncomfortable places. So I was, I was not supposed to be here this weekend. I was actually supposed to be in Israel. Um, I was leading a, a study tour, but it got moved because of all the travel restrictions to May. So if you've ever wanted to go to Israel, I've got some spots. Send me an email. So I'm here. And the first week of November, I took the week off because I was supposed to be there. And I planned on just taking a week of doing nothing. I didn't really take much vacation this summer. I got a bunch of days stacked up. And so I thought, I'm just going to do nothing. And it's going to be glorious. Had Pastor Brian speak last weekend. If you didn't hear him, he did a great job. Go back and watch it. But then I was, I was invited to an opportunity that I'm going to share with you. Now, I, I want you to just hear me because what I'm going to say may cause some of you to have the hair on the back of your neck stand up um, and kind of just bristle a little bit. But just, you love me, right? So just kind of lean in. And if you don't, just pretend, but just lean in with me here. So I was asked uh, to go for a week uh, as a volunteer to Fort McCoy near Toma uh, and work with the 13,000 Afghanistan refugees that are there. And so I did. My wife and I and some others, not through Northbrook, just on my own, just went. And uh, it was really uncomfortable. It was hard. It was a lot of work. It was emotionally exhausting. On the fourth day, I went back to my um, five-star accommodations in the National Guard barracks. And I laid down on my pillow at 7 p.m. and woke up the next day at 7 a.m., which I thought, that's like half a day. Um, When you take 13,000 people and put them in a place that they cannot leave and there's nothing to do, well, you got to do something. So a bunch of rec centers have been open, and so I went, and I volunteered with kids for a week. I did art projects, played soccer. You know, Tom Brady is two years younger than me, and Tom Brady gets hit every week pretty hard. I played soccer. I got tripped by a kid, hit the ground, and Tom Brady gets hit all the time and gets up. I got tripped by a nine-year-old and needed a chiropractor. The statements I'm making, this has nothing to do with politics, quite frankly. Um, I'm not here to make a statement. Um, If you want to debate the politics of it in the lobby afterward, find somebody else. I'm really not interested. Um, I get it, but some of them are terrorists. I'm sure that in a group of 13,000 people, there are some bad apples, just like if you get 13,000 of anybody, there's probably people that don't have the greatest of intent. So let's just say for simple mathematics that there are a hundred really bad people right now at Fort McCoy. That means there are 12,900 that are not, and they're here because they assisted the U.S. in some way, and now they're on the Taliban's hit list. But just take all that out. Take all the politics out. I I hear the words of Jesus. And this is where we have to 
embrace the words of our scripture and not just the words of our culture. Because Jesus said very clearly, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. And Jesus is not talking about feeling an emotion. Jesus is describing the taking of an action, something tangible. The apostle Paul even said in the book of Romans chapter 12, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. The truth is I don't, I don't know all of what's happening there. It's a mess. And the government's going to figure that one out. And we can debate the politics from now until Jesus comes, and I'm just not really interested in that. What I'm really interested in is my calling and following in the way of Christ, who asked me to be present in the world. And so that's what I did. I was just present in the world, a representative of Christ. To a bunch of people that, quite frankly, the ones I talked to that could speak a little bit English, they don't want to be here. They want to be home. We did some art projects with some kids and we put them all over the wall because I don't know, some of you might have been stationed at Fort McCoy. It's really not, it's gray. Everything's gray. Not a lot of color. So the walls are adorned with art projects and whenever an art project would fall on the ground, we'd throw them away, put new ones up because there were so many of them. But one art project fell on the ground and I picked it up. Before I threw it away, I decided to keep it and I stuck it in my Bible because it serves as a reminder to me. A child did an art project that they painted in the colors of the Afghan flag and they simply put, I miss home. This experience profoundly changed me. And I've been all over the world. It profoundly changed me because I think about what Jesus did for me, for you. When Jesus took bread and broke it, he took the cup And he said, this is for you. I'm dying for the sins of the world. When Jesus said, I'm dying for the sins of the world, he also died for this kid. And so when I take communion, I set aside all of those things that profane in some way the body and blood of Christ, I set aside my prejudices, I set aside all the judgments that I make. I mean, Jesus broke bread with a guy who would betray him. Examination is an uncomfortable yet sacred place to live. So the question I ask is, when was the last time you really thought about what it is that you valued? What does the message of the gospel actually ask of us? If I take a deep look, am I really in alignment with the God that I serve? Am I in alignment with the words of scripture? Do I believe this? Have I been the source of offense and hurt to others? Sometimes those questions lead to some pretty unhealthy discoveries about myself. The second angle I want to look at is the practice of communion as proclamation. The Apostle Paul writes, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, understand communion. You've got to understand the Jewish holiday of Passover. 
Jesus celebrated communion during the season of Passover. Luke 22, uh, Luke writes, Then came the day of unleavened bread, which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Passover is a Jewish holiday in which they celebrate the remembrance of freedom from slavery in Egypt. It's a remember specifically, a reminder specifically of the sacrificing of a lamb and putting the blood over the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over their homes. Jesus then celebrates communion during Passover. He refers to himself as the Lamb of God, and we are saved by his blood. Much of it is a reference to Passover. And so Jesus celebrates with his disciples an actual meal called a Seder, in which roasted lamb was served, bitter herbs, wine, and unleavened bread. So Jesus pauses in the midst of this Seder, and he takes the unleavened bread, and he he breaks it, and he says, "This, this body... This, this bread is my body, which is given for you. And this wine, this wine is my blood. And when you eat it, you're proclaiming what it is that I've done. I'm proclaiming that like the Israelites who were freed from slavery because of God's goodness and sacrifice, in communion, I am proclaiming that I am free from the sin that enslaves me because of the sacrifice of another lamb, the lamb of God. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion isn't simply a tack on during worship. It is the proclamation of what it is that we believe, what it is that we live. And finally, third angle is this the practice of communion is an act of connectedness. First, with God. Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The word communion means intimate sharing. That's what the word literally means. I can't think of anything more intimate than taking something that's outside of my body and putting it inside my body. Jesus asks us to eat. But he asks us to do so together. Because it's also connected with connectedness with the community of faith. The celebration of communion is the one ritual, the one practice, the one thing that all Christian churches, regardless of denomination or stripe, do. It's a symbol of unity in what the world desperately needs right now. What a divided world desperately needs is a united church. And so Jesus sits with his faith community and he celebrates the Seder, he celebrates the Passover, and then he says to them something audacious. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Naomi said, that's not new. But, but wait, we're not talking about like, love your neighbor as yourself. We're not talking about Operation Love Your Neighbor. That was October, right? <laughs> when Jesus said, I'm giving you a new commandment, I want you to love each other. He's specifically referencing the community of faith. And then he goes on to say, the world will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love and treat one another. Not your theology, not your church affiliation, not the way you celebrate communion, not your political affiliation, the way that you love one another. That will be the distinguishing mark that you are my disciple. And then Jesus takes it one step further by removing the robe of a rabbi wrapping the towel of a servant around his body. Now, we don't, we don't appreciate what Jesus did because it's so deeply cultural. In Jesus' day, the washing of feet, there was actually a position called the tender of feet. 
those that took care of people's feet. And it was always reserved, not only for a servant or a slave, but the one that was at the bottom rung, the lowest of the low. And so Jesus said, they're going to know you're my disciples by the way you love each other and the way that you serve each other. So when was the last time that we really paused and considered what we truly value, what's really important? What is it that the message of the gospel is actually asking of us? I'm going to invite you to take your communion. We're going to pause for a moment of examination as the Apostle Paul instructed. And so let's take a deep look. Am I really in alignment with the God I profess to serve? Have I been a source of hurt or offense to others? Because I know I have. Am I so wrapped up in my own opinions? My own comfort? That I lose sight of the call of Jesus to take up my cross, to deny myself and follow him. that Jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it he said this is my body which is given for you when you eat of it do this in remembrance of me let's eat the bread together said this is my blood it's a sign of the new covenant between God and his people when you drink of it do so in remembrance of me let's drink the cup together